Hi, everyone. It's Raghu Marcus, and I'm back with another episode of Ramdas Here and Now. This particular episode is from 1989, and uh, it is around work and money. So it's some important advisal from Ramdas. And I'll get into it in a minute because first thing I want to do is tell you all about this wonderful Ramdas Soul Land music series is going to restart again after uh, last uh, August, September. We started this series with just some uh, wonderful artists and uh, all the way from Krishna Das to Trevor Hall to East Forest and so on. Uh, and actually we're going to have uh, put out a compilation of uh, the best of from each artist. We have a track that'll be on the compilation. So look forward to that being announced a little bit further into the uh, summer or spring, maybe late spring of 2021. And uh, this uh, new lineup, which will start on March 19th and run through April. Um, and the first uh, evening, March 19th, is Random Rab and Earth Cry, which is Anthony from Papadocio who I did a wonderful podcast with on Mind Rolling, which you can hear uh, if you just check it out on Be Here Now Network. And who else is going to be here? Nina Rao, who's just this extraordinary kirtan chant singer uh, that is close to Krishna Das Kripa, a group of uh, actually Ram Das's, uh caretakers from, from these years past before uh, Ram Das left us. Uh, makeup Kripa, and uh, quite wonderful. And we got a couple of uh, rappers, Londrell and Jetpack Brandon. And then the final uh, evening, which is going to be April 30th, uh, we have John Forte from the Fugees. Uh, fascinating uh, story. John has been through quite a lot in his life. And uh, his music is uh, exceptional. Also, Rising Appalachia, uh, a duo that is very, very well known. And then uh, a little bit of uh, DJing, Martinico and DJ Dress. So uh, we're looking forward to this. And by the way, I hear that Random Rab, which will be the... Uh, um, Featured on March 19th, Friday. These are all Friday nights, by the way. He's putting together a multimedia show that should be extraordinaire with people painting while his music goes on and he's incorporating Ramdas, uh, um, Ramdas rapping. <laughs> Ramdas was quite a rapper, actually. Uh, so look forward here to the. Uh, Soul Land music series that is inspired by uh, Ram Dass's, uh connection and love of music. And uh, yeah, this should be quite great. Uh, 
I'm just trying to look for something. Well, Ramdas, you know, this has always been very important in Ramdas's life music, and he he thought of it as a portal to what he called soul land, the doorway to spirit. So uh, this is something that we're both honoring Ramdas and providing the community with a with a source of inspiration and connection through music. Uh, so please do tune in. It'll be on all of the platforms, ramdas.org, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all of it. And uh, you're, to, to hear it in its most highest of qualities, uh, go to ramdas.org. And uh, ramdas. go there now ramdas.org slash music and you can you know take a look at all the lineups and who all the artists are uh and get ready so that's my little announcement uh for um for this beautiful series that's starting on friday march 19th now onward and forward uh, to this particular it's an excerpt from a, a talk that Ram Dass gave in 1989, as I said, around work and money. And some of the initial things that he talks about are so relevant on every level. You know, of course, we, how many podcasts have we put out of talks of Ram Dass? I mean, a lot. I don't know, is it 130, 40, 50, something like that over these last number of years? So, you know, although Ramdas was totally diverse in all of the subjects that he featured in these talks, of course there's going to be a little bit of uh, repetition. And in my mind, uh, I who has been listening to this stuff for longer than I care to say and worked with Ramdas over many, many years going back to the uh, Love, Serve, Remember record set, vinyl record set, which ended up being the name of the foundation. And uh, it's important, actually, to hear more than once from different angles these concepts and the way that they enter into one's consciousness after repetition is profound. Also to say that I got a bunch out of what I just listened to. I was forced to listen so I could do this intro to this particular talk. Forced. Uh, uh, so he talks about actually working with people. You know, we all work with people in one way or another. And... Um, and what his suggestion is, is to look through the veil of the role and the personality of the person that you're working with, to, to just get behind that. This is very difficult to do. As we all know, we're in a work environment. Um, we're, we're trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right job, uh, trying to be efficient, uh, trying to advance our careers. And that all sets up polarization uh, where uh, it's very difficult to uh, step back and, you know, Ram Dass's thing around using the witness to see where you're stuck, you know, to be able to look behind somebody's own ego nature and that runs into our ego nature, meaning that uh, 
we are very, very attached to who we think we are. It, it, it's, a, it's not an easy thing. But uh, for those of us that, are under, that understand that we are on a path, a uh, spiritual path, and that path leads us to become free of all of this kind of polarization, this kind of judgmental uh, day-to-day, the kind of defense mechanisms to protect ourselves that we use all the time. So what we're aiming for to be an environment, he calls it, be an environment um, where when another person is ready to come up for air, right, to get free of their own stuff, there's nothing in you that will keep them stuck because you create an environment where you're not attached to the projections and judgments and defense mechanisms that happen. And it's not like uh, you don't fully participate in your role within this work situation or in any situation for that matter, but uh, you're just not identified with it. So you're not grasping, you're not holding on the way that we generally do. Uh, Let's see. Oh, God, he talks about this prison work that he used to do. Um, I'm not going to say much about it, but if you can imagine him leading loving-kindness exercises on death row, I mean, just extraordinary experience that he had. Just extraordinary. Um, One interesting thing that... um, that he talks about. He, he says as faith gets stronger, you need less and less in terms of money, in terms of acquisitions and so on. When it's flickery, he says, you keep wanting more, more security, and you start to hedge your bets against life. As faith gets stronger, you keep letting all that stuff go. And uh, so, oh, this is a Q&A, actually, this excerpt. So there's a, a number of different questions around this subject of work and money. And at the, so after Ramdas says it, this, some other stuff goes on, and then somebody comes back. I think he's talking particularly to one person who, who's really, what are we talking about? Faith. What are we talking about as our faith gets stronger? This, this is really, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, um, this is in this talk because I think it's really important and I'm glad I, uh, I noticed it. Uh, so the interpretation is basically as your identity with your, he calls it with your spiritual, uh, I called it spiritual nature. I think he called it something else related to spiritual being. But spiritual nature, as it gets stronger, and that happens as time goes on. Uh, you, your investment with your who you think you are, he calls it your psychological identity, it gets less and less. So it's just like a mo- faith is like a movement out of this identity with the story that we tell ourselves into the identity of what Ramdas later in life, uh, during his tenure on, on Maui for the 15 years that uh, he was uh, there, uh, it was around loving awareness, the identity being there. So, and that just is a natural thing. And all it takes really is, is uh, intention. Uh, 
because you just can't stand being a, you know, a shmageggy anymore. That's a, as Ramdas would say, a Sanskrit word meaning a dodo. Uh, you just can't stand it. I mean, I've seen it in my own life. You know, oh my God, this is enough already. And um, Ramdas makes a comment. You 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 begin to wonder who is in charge, and this is after. He tells a couple of stories that are, are really cool. Uh, from uh, one from Ramana Maharshi, where a foreigner came and got really bored uh, sitting around Ramana, and he does something to show that there is a place beyond this, you know, the Western mind and emotions and psychological uh, stuff. And uh, it's a very telling story of you begin to want that fits into the you begin to wonder who's in charge and of course uh, and he also points to uh, um, a story with uh, Maharaji and it was around money and uh, money that uh, a very poor woman gave to Maharaji three little rupees and and he gave those to Ramda so that's worth listening to but more of the point. Um, around you begin to wonder who's in charge. I can't, so uh, I've talked about uh, maybe on mind rolling, but certainly I think also here on Ramdas Here and Now, this one particular mentor of ours, his name was K.C. Tuari, and we are in the midst of finishing a film, a documentary about him, a a long-form documentary that I can't wait to uh, share with people. I'm hoping it'll be out by the end of this year, if not the beginning of next year. But he, we spent quite a bit of time. It's uh, Maharaji actually said to him the day before he left to out of uh, the mountain ashram called Kenshi, and he went down to the plains where he left that body. Uh, just before that happened, he, he said to Tuari, you take care of the Westerners now. And there's a whole wonderful story that is fleshed out in the movie. We've actually got footage of uh, Tuari and uh, Maharaji that day, from that day. Um, I can't tell you how many times Tuari, Casey Tuari, would turn to me, not just me, many of us, but it's so uh, indelible in my mind he used to he used to come up to me and he'd say, "My boy, if you think you are doing it, you are lost." You know, and these stories that Ramdas tells uh, towards the end of this uh, particular piece that uh, we're presenting today, these are stories that uh, I mean, it's just like when I met Ramdas the first time. He told us these stories of of Neem Karoli Baba and and. Um, what happened with Ramdas that was beyond any kind of rational stuff that certainly made Ramdas understand that um, what, uh, as he called it, it would push the edge of what's really going on in the universe, in the universe in general, and then in our little universe and our little life and you begin to understand there is a greater uh, movement that has to do with identifying with the spiritual nature over the psychological uh, ego stuff 
that we believe in as we grow up. So, uh, yeah, I'll never forget this uh, from Tuari. If you think you are doing it, you are lost. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, as Ramdas used to say. So this is again uh, around work and money from 1989, and uh, you know some really handy, handy um, advice in this, especially uh, relating to working with people and working with money. Oh boy. This is Ramdas Here and Now on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Don't forget about this fabulous Soul Land Music series coming up on March 19th, which will be probably just a day or two uh, after you hear this podcast. And uh, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, by the way. We have so many incredible... Uh, a podcast happening. We just they just keep building up, and um, we're introducing. Uh, who do we just introduce? Mirabai Bush, Mirabai, who's chair of Love Serve Remember Foundation and a longtime practitioner, and is is my mom. She's like my mom. When I met her in in Kenshi all those years ago, she's I always feel taken care of by her. Uh, so, yeah, go to uh, find Mirabai on BeHereNowNetwork.com and uh, check out the, the podcast she's doing. They're really wonderful. And we'll see you next time, next time around. Namaste. So that what I'm suggesting is that one of the things you do in, in the in workplace is to keep looking through the veil of role and personality to see who's behind it, to keep seeing who's behind it. And when you look at another person, and it's interesting to look at your office crew from that place, to start to look through the veils. I mean, what these are are fellow souls who have taken birth and happen to end up in your office. You know, they're not office partners, they're fellow souls. And they just happen to be meeting in this place for this peculiar reason. And the art of recognizing them. Now, you can't go up to the vice president and say, I know you're a soul. You're not the vice president. Because therein lies some difficulty. But you can be, what you can be is an environment with your being so that when another person is ready to come up for air, there's nothing in you that will keep them stuck. Because you're not, your mind isn't keeping them stuck in their role. Like you're my secretary or you're my boss. You fulfill a conscious being, invests the role, with, fulfills the role, but is in no way identified with the role. Full involvement, but no identification. Like if you're a therapist and you have a client, if when I was a therapist, I was so needful to be a therapist that everybody had to be my patient because I needed to be a therapist. And what's interesting is, as you less and less need your role, I left my clients free to not be clients anymore. I used to punish them when they wanted to stop. You're not well enough to leave me yet, because I wasn't well enough to have them leave me. 
and you examine how much you need your roles in business, how much you need the power of having money, how much you need prestige, how much you need these various things, and you use your life experiences in business to keep examining those components of the business world to see which things you need and which you don't. So you're doing a couple of things. You're developing the witness, you're developing your center, and you're looking at people and looking through the veils constantly to keep meeting them behind the veil through the role. But you play the role impeccably. You don't have to give up the role. You don't have to wink. You can just play the thing right through to the end. Those are a few of the strategies. Next question is, um, do we do inner work and stay with a high-pressure job that's not perfect, or do we leave it and follow our bliss? In other words, when is the grass uh, really greener? You know, if you're neurotic in Chicago, you'll be a neurotic in New York. It might take a while because New York will be fresh, but you'll recreate it probably. There's really nowhere to go. I mean, you can go if it's too painful and you can't handle it. But in the long run, you know, the choice, should I get married or shouldn't I? Should I take this job or that? The answer is it doesn't matter from a spiritual point of view. From a personality point of view, it matters a hell of a lot. You know, I don't want a high-pressure job. From a spiritual point of view, it doesn't matter because either one of them will be work on yourself. And people make their, they think they're making decisions all the time. Actually, what happens after a while is you're just listening to hear how it came out. You know, you're no longer the person that's making the decisions you think you're making. You begin to see how poignant you are. That you're just a happening. You're a lawful set of phenomena unfolding. And your life isn't that really interesting. That's just a drama. You're milking for all it's worth. Will I? Won't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? Can I? Can't I? Oh, my God. You know, marriage, family, business, life. My God. Vacation, meditation. What shall I do? Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at the hell that the mind creates, you know, and the answer always doesn't matter. From a spiritual point of view now, I keep saying. Because if you can't decide between A and B, if you take A, you'll miss B. And if you take B, you'll miss A. You, know, you grow from either one of them. You grow from either one of them. I mean, I deal with people in prisons. They are in high-pressure jobs. I mean, they may make white license plates, but it's not a pleasant environment. And I deal with lifers in prison. Uh, and some of them are some of the most spiritually evolved people that I correspond with. They are extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And they've just taken what they got and they've worked with it. And they call, talk to me about how they look at the guards and how they see through the veil of the guards and how they take the anger and they watch their own reactivity and start to cultivate a space so they are responsive rather than reactive to people's anger around them. And how they sit in their cell. I remember going to San Quentin's death row and leading a meditation of loving kindness in which we were sending out metta to all the universe from death row. And here were all these guys waiting to be electrocuted or gassed, I guess, saying, may all beings be free from suffering. May all beings. And it was just extraordinary. In a way, I mean, that was a dying center that I was in, by the way. I mean, it was death row, which is a dying center, technically. And that had awakened them. But in the in the in this in mainline, uh, when I uh, deal with inmates, a lot of them, not a lot of them, 
but a percentage of them do incredible work in very, very hard environments, very hard environments. I think that we tend to underestimate how vulnerable most of us are. See how to say this one. Some of my friends start businesses and the businesses start very, very sweetly. And everybody meditates and they all love each other and it's very soft and, and everything's beautiful. And then the business starts to succeed. And pretty soon they need a few more employees. And they need a special kind of employee. And they can't wait for a special kind of a computer employee that also wants God. And they've got an overhead to pay and they've got business opportunities. So they make the compromise and they get in the computer programmer that is the best computer programmer. And immediately the whole tone of the scene starts to change because the license between that person and the rest of the group is different. Do you hear what the issue is? And it just keeps growing like that in which you make one compromise after another, after another, after another, until finally you are in an environment where you constantly said, oh, it's not costing me anything. Oh, it's okay. I can handle it. I can handle it. Until finally you often get lost. And it turns ugly and meaningless and horrible. And it's because you tried to convert more than you could really convert. You weren't quite ready. So I would say this, that for most of us, if you have your choice, take a job that optimizes your chance to be around conscious beings. It's the same thing with a marriage. If you have a choice, marry a conscious being. If you don't have a choice, you do what you can with what you got. That seems reasonable. How do we cope with perceptions of how much money we need? Uh, how do we cultivate a healthy approach to practical needs? I can't hear any simple rule of thumb about this issue because each person comes out of a different kind of a background and has a different unique role to play in the game. I used to uh, see that, I used to say it simply that you took enough to keep yourself alive and to fulfill your responsibility to others and then the rest you distributed. And that's how much money you needed. And in India, it's very clear that there are ashrams or stages of life. When you're a student, you are supported. And then you become a householder and your job is to be in the world and make as much money as you can because you are supporting the other three ashramas of life because then comes the time when you finish business and you start to do study, and then the last one where you are a wandering sadhu or holy person. And the householders support all of them, the students and the wandering holy people and the, the parents when they go off to do the studies. And so the businessman is to make as much money as they can as their duty to God in order to give it away for these other things to make the system go because they were students and they will also be old people and everybody helps the other game work for everybody else. Um, I have met people who, um, who seem to be happy with very little and I've met a lot of people, as I'm sure you have, who seem to be very unhappy with an awful lot. Um, I remember I was teaching a fellow to fly once whose uncle was Paul Mellon, who's a very wealthy man. Paul Mellon had $700 million or something, or a billion dollars something. And we landed at New York's LaGuardia Airport, and we pulled up to the Butler Aviation, and we were in this guy's new um, Piper Comanche or something. 
And we pulled in and he looked up at this huge, big jet. And he says, this guy had $20 million. And he says, oh, damn it. That's Paul, Uncle Paul's plane. I mean, like, he suddenly felt so poor, this guy who has 20 million, because Uncle Paul had 700 million. And I've watched what happens to people as they make more money. They shift the context of the people they live with. And the context keeps seducing them into more and 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 more. That whole concept that more is better is a very deep sickness in this culture. And it's fanned by double jeopardy and Dallas and uh, dynasty, although it's not much better on those shows. Uh, some people come in, through life with a lot of anxiety about starvation and hunger, passed on from their grandfathers two generations back. And so they need a certain security before they're free enough of their neurosis or that panic or that fear to be able to, be, to be do inner work and be productive. Other people can go right along the edge with no savings whatsoever and seem to ride right along with it. I don't hear any general rule. I think that when people see money as energy and see that when they hold energy, there are karmic effects of holding energy. And a lot of those karmic effects backfire on them. That they start to see that part of the responsibility of having energy is learning how to pass it through you. And learning how to trust and to keep giving it away. Keep giving it away. People in the business world tend to take money so seriously. That story about my guru was always kind of stuck in my mind. Of, um, that sadhu that came to visit him. And the sadhu was an old fellow who had known Maharaji many years before. And the sadhu came in and he was quite arrogant. And he sat down right on the tucket with Maharaji, right on the, this thing. And all the devotees were very upset that he was sitting there. And he said to Maharaji, you've got this big temple. You're collecting stuff. You, you're really attached. You want so much. Maharaji said, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, Maharaji couldn't care less. He had a water pot and a dhoti that kept falling off. And uh, people would build these temples to try to capture him. You know? And he said, I guess you're right. And the guy was playing with a little shaligram, which was a, a stone you do Shiva puja with. And Maharaji says, oh, look at that shaligram. Could I see it? So the guy showed him the shaligram, and Maharaji says, oh, that's beautiful. Can I have it? And the fellow said, see, I knew. You're just greedy. You want everything. I mean, you want my shaligram, and that's part of my spiritual practices. I can't give that to you. Maharaji said, will you sell it to me? I can't sell it to you. It's a holy object. The thing is, is worth about five rupees. Maharaji said, I'll give you 40 rupees. So side to the moment, the side says, well, if you need it, Maharaji, I'll sell it to you. So Maharaji got 40 rupees from one of the devotees and he gave it to the guy. Then he said to the guy, give me all your money. <laughs> so the sadhu said, I knew you weren't going to let me keep the 40 rupees. And he gave him the 40 rupees. And the guy says, no. Maharaji says, no, I want all your money. The stuff you got pinned inside your jacket. So the guy took out 200 rupees. And he says, Maharaji, that's all the money I've got. 
Maharaj, he took the 200 rupees and the 40 rupees and he threw them onto the coal fire and they flared up and the man freaked. He said, my, Maharaj, my God, that's all the money I had. I was... Maharaj, he said, oh, he said, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't realize how attached you were. And he took a pair of tongs and he reached in and he pulled out all new dollar bills and he handed them to the guy. And the guy got off the table. See, that's the kind of story the West doesn't quite buy. <laughs> Maharaji said to me once, all the money in the world is mine. Now, is that total psychosis? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Or is it? Or is there some other way of understanding money in which you see it as just this kind of play energy, like monopoly money? You play with it. And you have the ability to play with people's minds also. I mean, look at uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh with really some minimal powers. Got 92 Rolls Royces. I mean, that's a major game. I have a sense that as your faith gets stronger, you keep needing less and less. That when your faith is flickery, you keep wanting more security. You want to keep hedging your bet against life. And as your faith gets strong, you just keep letting it go. Yes. How do I present myself to the universe so that it bestows its blessings upon me? You are, and it is. <laughs> really, that's it. You are, and it is. If you can't see it, you think something else will make you see it? What do you count a blessing? You've designed the perfect curriculum you need to get free. You're in it. It is bestowing its blessing. It's working perfectly. What could you possibly want you don't have? I often try to pray to Maharaji, but I can never think of what I would ask him for. All I can ask him for is to understand why it is the way it is. Because how presumptuous of me to want to change it when I don't even understand why it's that way in the first place. I mean, many people use affirmations. The only affirmation I can imagine using is one about God. The thing is that you do develop in spiritual work, you do develop powers. You do develop cities or powers. And those cities or powers do allow you to get what you want in the world. The problem with using them is they start to enchant you. And you get caught. You start to stop along the way to use the powers or smell the pretty flowers. And the best rule in yoga is if you've got powers, don't use them. Throw them back into the pot. Because you won't get free when you start to use powers because you'll use them for good. And righteousness is the final chain that traps you from going into the inner temple. And it's interesting how we in the West are so enamored of powers. The power to read minds, the power to teleport, the power to materialize things, the power to... I remember visiting Sai Baba. Sai Baba said, here, let me give you something. I said, no, Baba, I don't want anything. He said, here, and he held out his hand, and I thought, now I'm a scientist, I'll watch very carefully, I won't blink. And this bluish light appeared on his hand and it got solider and solider and it turned into a little medallion with his picture on it. 
And he gave it to me. It was cold. It wasn't even hot. And it looked like it had been made in Tijuana. I thought if he's going to manifest something, you know, he could have given me some divine jewel or something like that. And I said to one of the swamis, it's amazing how he makes those things. He said, oh, he doesn't make them. I said, no. He says, no, he has a warehouse. He just moves them with his mind. I said, oh, if that's all he does, well, the hell with it. You know? <laughs> you begin to wonder who's in charge, you know? I mean, you can't help but figure who's really running the show. There's this great story about Ramana Maharshi, who... Um, most of the stories about Ramana Maharshi are that he's just sort of um, sitting there very quietly emanating love. And he's such a beautiful being. And he wrote a little poetry and just very quiet. Keep asking people, who are you? But this one, this fellow told us the story. He was an army person. He had been a, in the Air Force. And he had been with Ramana Maharshi when he was a child growing up. And we came back after he went to the Air Force to show Ramana Maharshi his new uniform and what, you know, that he was an officer and all that. And he was sitting with Ramana Maharshi. And there was a, an English businessman there. And the English businessman was having a tremendous difficult time in his life. He had a lot of despair and anxiety. And he had an, a bus an office manager in his Madras plant that said to him, you should meet this great saint uh, and near Madras and... So the man came, flew to India to spend two months with Ramana Maharshi. And he went with his office manager to see Ramana Maharshi, and they were all sitting in the hall silently, and Ramana Maharshi was sitting up there, and the guy sat down, and he sat there, and he was ready to spend two months. And after about 20 minutes, he was so agitated and angry, nobody would talk to him, and he was a very important man, that he got up in disgust to leave. And Ramana Maharshi said, Sir... Before you leave, would you do me one favor? I said, what's that? He said, would you write a letter to your wife? I thought this is the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Paper was provided and he wrote, Dear Doris, I didn't find what I was looking for in India. I hope you remember to water the flowers and change the dentist appointment. I'll be back Tuesday, signed Philip. And he stood there and he kind of threw it out. And they picked it up and handed it to Ramana Maharshi, who was naked most of the time, except for a little loincloth. And Ramana Maharshi folded it up and stuck it under his behind. And then he said to the guy, would you just sit here for a few minutes? Just for a few minutes. Like, humor me. Well, all right. The guy's sitting there. And then after a few minutes, Ramana Maharshi got up and he started to shuffle out, kind of in, in a state, and as he did, he went by and he handed the guy paper, except it was a different piece of paper. And he opened the paper and it said, Dear Philip, I'm sorry you didn't find what you wanted in India. I did water the flowers and change your dentist appointment. I'll look forward to seeing you on Tuesday. I would write a longer letter, but the, the dark man in the turban who delivered your letter is in a rush. <laughs> So when you play at that realm, 
with people playing with that stuff. And then you look at all these people who think they're making decisions all the time. It all looks different. It all looks more like a joke. I mean, uh, like all the political leaders look like sort of adolescents that are terribly, terribly preoccupied with third chakra business. It all looks sort of like just this kind of inflated stuff of the mind. And you keep working on yourself to get freer and freer of it so that you can be an instrument to free other people from the entrapment of the chakras, of the power that business provides. Okay. The first, the first clarification that I'd like to work with is in, in describing the issue of money. Um, we were talking about how much does each one need, and you said, well, each individual has their own little play in the game, and there's a kind of a unique play that each one of them has in the game. And I listened to that, and then I listened to another statement that was made earlier that on a spiritual level, it doesn't really matter what you do, and I get confused. And, and it somehow lies in my consciousness as a dichotomy. And um, I'd like to work with that just a bit before, I, before we leave so that I can feel that. Uh, the level at which it doesn't matter is that, let's take it around money. If you hold a lot of money, you're going to work with all of the stuff that comes out of that one. If you give away a lot of money, you're going to work with all the stuff that comes out of that one. If you give away money so you don't have money, you're going to then work with that. If you hold money and don't give it away, you're going to work with that. In other words, either of those choices from a spiritual point of view is going to take your existing karma and provide data for it to work with so that you will grow from it. So in that sense, it doesn't matter which way you go. Now I'm talking about from a point of view of spiritual practice, from awakening. From an ethical point of view, or a compassionate point of view, or a caring point of view, then the use of money to relieve suffering is, uh, is an ethically very high and responsible course of action. It doesn't necessarily make you free. We're talking about two different things here. One is your own freedom or liberation. And the other is the part you have to play in your, well, with your fellow human beings in society. It's a very different matter. So now I'll go ahead and ask the question again. So um, if it doesn't matter what you do because of that you will be getting free, I mean, each one of us are coming to this course because we feel that by having some kind of sadhana or some type of a practice, you know, it's, it's, it's breaking down whatever that illusion or the, you know, so we can see through a little bit more clearly. And so um, I am so stuck in feeling that there really must be something that I need to do in order to get through it all. I mean, I know that it's a, and that itself might be a trap. But that is the trap. Yeah. That is the trap. I mean, ultimately, as I said before, you just sit because you sit. You don't sit because you get enlightened. You just sit. And you just hear because you're here. You're not here in order to go there. This is it. This is what everything was about in your life up to this moment, is this. Is this. It's not instrumental. We in the West always are trying to parlay this into that. But ultimately, that is one that keeps feeding the sense of continuity of ego, of somebody going somewhere. So part of it is facing the fact there's nothing to do. This whole thing is a complete hype. 
I mean, I'm not being cute either. Well, no, no, I'm just trying to you know? impress Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's a, it's a delicate issue because people want to feel that they are going somewhere and they're doing something and it's good and they're accomplishing something. And all that is useful in stages of sadhana, but it isn't ultimately the truth. It isn't the highest truth. It's something that sucks who you think you are on and on and on and on and on. And that, that entity has to die. But as it's useful in stages of sadhana, one, one and each one of us, I'm sure, is seeking to tune ourselves to, to the, you know, it's like every single minute we have to make a decision. Do we eat? Do we drink? Do we sit? Do we walk? Do we, you know, do we come see Ramdas or do we go to the beach? I mean, you know, at every moment there's that decision that needs to be made. And at some point we have to have some... It's just an illusion of decision, by the way. There is no choice. The choice whether you decide to go to the bathroom or not is determined by a whole set of factors, including the nature of your sphincter and your, what you ate and how fast it's moving through and how you've responded, how far the toilet is from where you're standing. I mean, there are a whole lot. If I knew enough of all the variables, I could predict whether you'd say, oh, gee, I've got to go to the toilet and think you made a free choice. That mind was reactive to all that stuff. I mean, you're part of a web of law. You're a happening. You're just an unfolding process. And all those things you think I'm choosing, you're just not. You can stand in that place imagining you're choosing and thinking I'm really making choices. But the more interesting place is to just see how he's, how he's doing. Watch him unfold. I wonder whether he went to the Ramdas retreat or not. It's interesting to stand outside of an identity with the person who's choosing, who's going somewhere. I will deal with this again. I may. No, you're, you're right on. You're fine. And I want to deal with it because it's a big one. But I don't want to deal with it tonight because I'm too tired. Can I just look at one other issue that yeah. I was thinking? The, the concept that you brought up is that um, if you have enough faith, um, you'll, 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 the, the quote was, um, as your faith gets stronger, um, your needs get less and less. And, and, but I, I, I'm not really sure that I really understand what faith is. I don't know. My, my experience is that faith is, is not, well, I'll just let you deal with it. I'm... Another way it could have been said is, is your identity with your spiritual entityness gets stronger. Your investment in your psychological identity gets less and less. That would be another way of saying it. Yeah, well, that's the see, and that it's the faith in the in the other dimension of reality. Faith is just faith in the spiritual dimension is really what I'm talking about. I wasn't uh, overwhelmingly satisfied with my responses tonight because yes, well, that's all right. We'll live through it <clears throat> because I was uh, I found myself really tired tonight, and uh, I shouldn't try to play when I'm really that tired. It's interesting stuff, though. You had some good questions. And uh, there are moments when your mind is really clear. You can go right to it. And there are other times when you're pushing a little bit. And what I do when I push is I bring in old story. And those of you that are Ramdas aficionados know all my materials so well. You say, oh, there's the industrial vice president again. And there's... <laughs> so, but bear with me. I'm human.
surprise though it may be to some of you. <clears throat> Maharaji was once sitting on his tucket and a, a little old lady came up. She was shaking. She had palsy. She had a very um, torn sari on. She came up to him and she unwound the tip, the end of her sari. And she took out three rupee notes and she stuck them under Maharaji's blanket. And Maharaji said, Nema, nay, nay, take it back. And so she took the rupees very slowly and she wrapped them in the tip of her sari, end of her sari, and tied them in a knot and put them back. Maharaji looked at me and he said, Ma, give me the rupees. So she untied the tip of the sari and took the three rupees and handed them to him. And he handed them to me. I who had traveler's checks. And how should I interpret that? What should I do? So then people said, you've been granted a great boon. And you'll probably never be poor again. And they said, keep the three rupees. Shortly thereafter, these fruit sellers, these, all this old um, Muslim couple came to see me. And they were very poor and they were very sick and they were going to the plains to start another business and they were very depressed. And I said to them, here, here's a rupee note. Hold on to it. And they disappeared and I never seen them again. And I gave away the second rupee note. I don't even remember to whom. And I have one left. Now, either that's all nonsense. But I noticed my bank account always has money in it. <laughs> but I'm also a very practical person. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love the stories that push the edge of how do you understand what's going on in the universe. I just love that story. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.